Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and music educator, Patrice Russian. Patrice's pro career started at the young age of 17, when she won a spot on the bill at the renowned Monterey Jazz Festival, which led to her signing her first record deal with the esteemed jazz label, Prestige. After three albums with Prestige, Patrice signed with Electra Records, which led to a string of hit singles, three Grammy nominations, and multiple accolades for her contribution to contemporary music. Additionally, Patrice has scored memorable and award-winning works for TV and film, served as musical director for the 46th, 47th, and 48th Grammy Awards, and has worked closely with some of the most legendary figures in music, including Quincy Jones and Prince. everybody, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I'm Pete Ganbarg. I'm the head of A&R for Atlantic Records, and I am thrilled today to be hosting an iconic musician, songwriter, arranger, producer, conductor, so many adjectives to our guest today. Uh, welcome, Patrice Russian. Hi, Patrice. Oh, hello, Pete. Great to be here with you all. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good. Good. Doing fine. You know, holding on in these unprecedented times, but... Uh, we got the music to keep us rolling, so it's all Absolutely. good. Uh, geographically, where are you located today? I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah, this is home. This is my place of work. I've got, I don't know if you can really see, but I've got keyboards around me. I'm surrounded with all of our tools of the trade. Amazing. I was just doing a little homework, and I saw that you're going to be honored in Nashville from the Cafe Mocha and the National Museum of African-American Music with the Trailblazer Award at the Salute Them Awards. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's really an honor to, um, you know, to be recognized in that way. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you do what you do because you, you love it. Fortunately, things have gone very well. But, you know, you don't always know in what way it touches people. So to receive something like the Trailblazers Award is pretty cool because Amazing. Uh, it gives an idea that people were paying attention. So that's Amazing. Great. Well, congratulations on Thanks. that. And and before we kick off our interview, would love to let everybody know some of the other recognition that you've received in your career. Patrice has received three Grammy nominations, two in 1982 on the Straight from the Heart Cycle, one in 1997 for the Signature Album. You received the ASCAP Songwriters Award in 1988, the USC Black Student Assembly Legacy of Excellence Award in 1992, the Crystal Award for American Women in Film in 1994, an ASCAP Award for the Most Performed Song in Motion Picture for 1997 for Men in Black, the NAACP Image Award, a nomination for Best Contemporary Jazz Recording also for Signature in 1998, 
an honorary doctorate from the Berklee College of Music in 2005 and the Ramo Music Faculty Award in 2020. So with all that behind you, <laughs> welcome to today's interview. Hopefully we can live up to all that has come before. Well, thank you. <laughs> and all the amazing music. So I also love, I was just telling you that, you know, as an employee of the Warner Music Group and have someone who's been doing A&R here for close to 15 years now, it's always an amazing opportunity to speak to someone who's had history inside Warner Music. So we're definitely going to talk a lot about your time at Electra, you know, the beginning, the middle and the end and the ups and the downs and all that stuff. But let's go back to the beginning. I would love for you to tell your story to everyone listening and, and watching today. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in South Central LA, went to public schools. My high school experience was probably the most pivotal in that I was at Elaine Leroy Locke High School. This was a new school in the community post, just post Watts riots. So there was an, a concerted effort to get back to the idea of the development of the community and black excellence, especially, you know, to give the kids things to do that were positive. And in this particular time, this new, relatively new high school had an amazing music department. And it was won by three very daring and... At this point, I would have to say, you know, that they were a little ahead of their time in that they felt like that for kids who were talented in music, that this would be an ideal situation to be able to teach them a lot of other things. In other words, offer a platform that they're interested in and use that platform to introduce them or to make them aware of all kinds of other things. So the history of the music became a part, as much a part of what we did in marching band and symphonic band and in our jazz band especially as anything else. Learning language, you know, how to communicate with people, teamwork, how to work together, goal setting, all these kinds of things that are concepts that are, you know, especially for teens, are kind of hard. We were able to have firsthand experiences with that through playing music. Now, I have to say that prior to that experience, I had been playing piano uh, since I was five. And that was, again, based upon a nursery school teacher that I had when I was real, real small. Six years difference between my younger sister and I. And so I was an only child for about five years. And hmm. this particular teacher noticed that during the day, this was where, where we would sing or dance or have those kinds of activities, I would perk up. And my parents, pretty progressive people, you know, migrated here from the South and wanted to do their best and also wanted the best for for my sister and I, they said, great, well, what do we do about that? And she knew of a program at the University of Southern California, USC, that was designed specifically for students who were majoring in music education. And their job was to observe these young children and to offer theories about whether or not these kids were hearing the same things, what their reactions were to the music, give them labels for their reactions so that they could monitor and say, well, let's do running notes now or let's do skipping notes now. Not our usual musical terms, but the way the music would make us physically react, and then we would attach that. And the reason that I bring that up is because attaching those kinds of terms and even colors or emotions to musical sounds and musical feelings 
was a part of my, became a part of my piano playing, ultimately became a part of my, in the high school band, I played flute, became a part of being in an orchestra or in a band and hearing things in that way. It just wasn't the notes I'm playing. It's how the notes I'm playing fits into the larger situation. And I think that that is the long way around of getting to why I had always been attracted to composition and songwriting, because for me there was a physical manifestation of those emotions through the music. And I used that and still do today. And even as I'm teaching, you know, a lot, depend on a lot of that information to inform. So really from the earliest of ages, you were taught how to feel music. Yes. And there's so much of a symbiotic nature to what you just said, because so many years later, you know, as those students taught you at USC... You end up on the staff of USC, and you're a music educator in addition to everything else, which is awesome. I love this program that I wasn't aware of that you just mentioned. It was called Eurythmics, right? Correct. Correct. You know, we take it for granted today because there's so much data and proof that early childhood development must include certain kinds of awakening of certain aptitudes that kids have. And that when those kinds of things are ignited, that the level of learning, the level of appreciation is deeper. So this was a little bit new at that time, but now, you know, is a part of what continues to go on. And that class is still offered over at the Colburn School right across the street from Disney Hall in Los Angeles. There's a performing arts school called the Colburn School, and that class is still offered over there. So you probably can't remember a time that music wasn't a part of your life. That's correct. Because I came up at a time where, you know, we were always with television. I watched a lot of TV. I liked the shows, but I loved the music and the variations in the music, the themes, how catchy some of the TV themes were. You know, you could you could be in the kitchen making a sandwich and you would know, oh, I Spy is on because you'd hear the theme or whatever and you'd run out or Lassie or whatever. Huh. So was it a goal of yours from such a young age that, hey, one day I can do that? One day there's going to be a TV show called The Steve Harvey Show, and I'm going to write the theme song to that. I knew very early that I wanted to be part of that. Whatever that was in that box that caused the music to happen, I wanted to be there. I wanted to do that. What kind of music do you remember hearing growing up? in the house with your parents. I heard you say that there was a lot of jazz, there was a lot of mm-hmm. classical music, there was Motown, there was the sounds of the radio in the, in the late 60s as well. Yeah. What do you remember? All of that. My parents belonged to a record club. They didn't play any instruments, but they were avid music lovers. Record club like the Columbia House type of exactly. thing? Exactly. It was exactly that one. 12 albums for a dollar or a penny or whatever it was? There it is. That's it. And so we would get these albums of all types. You'd get classical music one week. You'd get the pop music of the day, Perry Como, you know, Frank Sinatra. Then you'd get some Miles Davis or you'd get some, you know, Earl Bostic or you'd get some Duke Ellington or Sarah Vaughn or something. We would put the records on. You know, they had the spindle and the records would just fall. And on Saturday mornings... When we were cleaning up the house, getting it ready, you know, for whatever our weekend activities were going to be, there was music playing all day, all the time. And that's what the music that we used, you know, to kind of give the ambience to the house as we were cleaning up. The other thing was that the radio was on all the time. Radio at that time was powerful, all powerful. That's where we got our news. That's where we learned about music. 
up and down the dial of all the different kinds of music that there were, whether it was jazz or R&B. That's what my parents listened to all the time. And it was very obvious and very clear to me that, you know, music was just in the air. It was just there. Plus the music of the church when we go to church and also the the music in and around Los Angeles, which also involved a lot of Latin music and, you know, just derivatives of a lot of different things. Plus what I was doing in school, it just seemed like music was just a part of the atmosphere, a part of the air. And it was at one point a part of a good rounded education. And all of the music that you were hearing regardless of genre, all felt right to you. It never felt weird to hear Sarah Vaughan and then hear, you know, the sound of the radio that was playing more contemporary music. It all made sense to you. It all made sense to me. I mean, there were two kinds of music. I either embraced it and liked it, or there was something about it that I didn't really enjoy. But most of the time, in terms of categories, I didn't really draw those kinds of distinctions. It was music that either made you move or music that made you listen or music that made you think or whatever, but it wasn't as if one was over overreaching the other. And then I was a I was a preteen during the height of the Motown times, you know, with the temptations when our and the and Stevie Wonder and, you know, the height of the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and all these people. And I watched them also progress in their own careers because that's what the kids at school were listening to when I was in middle school and then in high school. That's what we were listening to. And by the time I got to high school, I had been playing music long enough to have developed this pretty wide palette. And that vocabulary, I think, as we were learning more about the music, the quote-unquote classical music of America, which was jazz, I had more of a vocabulary to be able to embrace what all of that meant, not only socially, but also just in terms of the ways in which music was put together. We were introduced to bands and that idea of of groups. We went on field trips to hear the L.A. Philharmonic, and we went to the Lighthouse in Concert by the Sea to see jazz musicians play. We would go to the studios. We're in Los Angeles. We played a lot of big Battle of the Bands kinds of contests, And some of the adjudicators would be people like Quincy Jones, Oliver Nelson, Tom Scott. And so we would also get to go to the studios. And I saw musicians living the life of musicians on lots of different levels and in lots of different ways making music. And then there was this up-and-coming band that occasionally would rehearse at our high school. Huh. I know where you're going with this. They were called Earth, Wind & Fire. And they came in with rehearse, you know, and then the summer that I graduated, Mighty Mighty came out and they blew up. So we saw the work that went right, into it, but right. we also saw the rewards that came from it. Well, speaking of the rewards, I heard a rumor that Earth, Wind & Fire played your senior prom. Is that true? That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't pay for the time that they were 
using our multipurpose room. And so they decided, what can we do? And they played the prom that year, and that happened to be my high school prom. That's a pretty memorable high school prom right there. Yes, sir. (laughs) Yes, sir. More memorable, though, was watching them rehearse. Oh, man. and And seeing the level of detail in them working on and finding their sound. And that the songs, the parts, all of the things that went into so much of the iconic music, you know, that we know as them, those kinds of those kinds of uh, optics and hearing that sound never left me. So the way in which Maurice handled rehearsal, the way in which the, they responded to one another is a big part of even the way that I operate today in terms of what I what I did in my own career and continue to do and how I teach the possibility of being able to get from one level of your expression to another. Wow. And that was all happening to you while you were in high school. You had yeah. the opportunity to watch all this and, and be part of it. I read that you helped them load their gear into the multi-purpose room mm-hmm. as a high school student. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to back up a little bit because one style of music that we haven't spoken about is classical music, and you are a classically trained pianist. So at what point did you start playing classical music and taking that seriously in terms of study? Well, the piano was introduced to me after that Eurythmics class. The piano was introduced to me at five. And, you know, the method, I guess, that was the most the most associated with really getting fundamentals was classical music, especially for piano. There's some instruments like that you can't get away from violin, string instruments, piano being another one. So the classical training really gave me a foundation in terms of technique, the discipline of practice, and I love the music. But... I guess at about 12, when most of us want to be just like our friends, and I noticed that they weren't having to spend an hour a day alone practicing anything, that when they went to school to play music, they had cases, and they were carrying around cases, you know, of you know trumpets and saxophones and flutes and stuff, and I didn't have a case, and I'm trying to call myself a musician too, and I wasn't in the band because there wasn't a piano in the band. I started feeling a little bit like, hmm, what's going on with this? And in order to remain in vogue with my peers, I started picking out songs from the radio and playing those on piano as well. And when I would go to my lessons on once a week, my teachers would be, you know, my teacher would notice that, you know, if I was supposed to be learning this uh, Mozart piece or this Beethoven sonata or whatever, and I was not prepared for my lesson, she would say, well, what did you do this week? Oh, well, I learned this, this Marvin Gaye song. <laughs> and, the, and, and she would say, oh, play it for me. And so I would. And then she would, like, just deftly turn the lesson so that the idea of the technique and clarity of being able to play this Marvin Gaye song, she would relate it somehow to Mozart. I mean, an amazing teacher, an amazing educator that allowed for me to see the connection of music as opposed to, you didn't do what I told you to do this week, blah, blah, blah. The energy went into trying to make the connection of motifs and things like that. Now look here, in this hide and peace, you see the motif running through here? Oh, you know, so it it connected certain kinds of disparate dots for me about all of the music. I got very, very good at the piano. 
I played lots of recitals, and I played a few contests and things like this. But I didn't enjoy it in the same way, and I guess it's because I didn't see where I fit. I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. I didn't see the idea of where you go with this. And I had already heard so many other kinds of music and styles of music that I felt like I didn't really totally belong there. I belong there and there and there and over there and over here. And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to have a career that allowed me to explore all of those different things. For sure. When you were playing a Marvin Gaye song that you heard on the radio, you were playing that totally from ear, right? By ear. Yeah. Yeah. I just picked it out from the radio. Which, I mean, just is an example of your, you know, God-given talent on, you know, that your, your musical aptitude allows you to do that, which is incredible at such a young age. I think that what I found then and what I preach now is that the idea of being able to do that gives you a certain kind of immediacy and access, but to also understand that that can also be shared if you know how to read music and if you understand some of the theory and harmony language that makes up all of our different musics. It's like having the keys to the kingdom, to be able to to do both and to see them as both very valid. So... I try to offer that, especially to students, especially 21st century musicians, mm -hmm. is you need it all. Well, there's such an important lesson in what you're saying about the importance of music education, because you can talk about the USC students in the Arrhythmics program teaching you at a very young age. You can talk about the piano teacher who was you know, deftly threading the needle between the Marvin Gaye and the Sonatas. I also heard you say that a lot of kids would go in and try to show off if they were playing piano, they would want to learn how to play really fast. And it was a piano teacher who would say to you, if you want to learn how to play really fast, you first have to learn how to play really slow. That's right. That's right. I think in most things, sometimes, you know, especially nowadays, you know, we, we want this instant gratification and we forget that part of the enjoyment of getting to where you want to go is knowing that every step that you take is a forward step. What you want to avoid is going forward and then having to retreat and go back and redo. That is the way that that lesson was offered to me. And again, you know, music and learning music gives you so many life lessons if you just pay attention. Mm -hmm. That's the way most things are, Pete. You know, when you want to, you set your goal, you get in your mind the target, and then you determine the best path or paths to that target, and you make each step go to that, as opposed to just, you don't know where you're going and you just go, you know? Mm -hmm. Having sort of a goal in mind for what you want and setting sort of a some ideas as to how you're going to get there and being open to what the serendipitous aspects of following a path may lead you to, but having the capacity to just stay a particular course Sometimes it's a little slower. It's not as fun, maybe. For some people, it's not as sexy to just than just blowing up. But <laughs> I think that you're in the game a little longer, and it's solid, and it's built on something. A hundred percent. The music didn't just start yesterday with what you heard. Right. It is built on a foundation of many different kinds of expressions. And I love what you were sharing with me before our interview, 
how with some of uh, our young people that are working, you know, at record companies now, to be able to go back a little bit to understand the trajectory and the lineage that has created some of the people who are current today in terms of their musicality is to have a tremendous advantage to being able to make sure that that's not over in 15 minutes. That is perhaps an opportunity to grow and to last, and most careers are like that, I think. You know, there's an old expression that's very true where, you know, if you don't know where we've been, you can't figure out and help guide us to where we're going. And I think that with music, it's totally like that. And your career to me is fascinating because it's, you know, it's a perfect example of all that. I want to go back to Locke High School for a minute and because so many important things happened to you while you were at this very, which which feels like a very forward-thinking, you know, future-friendly high school. Is that where you got your nickname of Baby Fingers? No, actually, that came later. That came a little bit later as a result of the first Electra album, actually. Oh, okay. When we needed to, you know, copyright certain kinds of things and, you know, codify things from a legal perspective. Right. You needed, you know, to have to be incorporated. The publishing company, right. Such like that, and there it is. <laughs> that was it. So at Locke High School, you talked a little bit about the teachers, which we'll get into in a second, but there mm-hmm. were also some students who ended up having incredible careers musically. Gerald Albright was a classmate of yours, and Dugu Chancellor was a classmate of yours who ended up playing drums on a lot of your records. And then Talk about one of the young teachers who really became a, a huge part of your life. Talk about Reggie Andrews. Yeah. Well, when Reggie started teaching, his first years of teaching, I was there at Locke, and he had grown up in that same neighborhood. In fact, went to the middle school that happened to be across the street from the high school, you know, as a kid. So he knew the area. He knew the people. He knew a lot about us, and he had as a young teacher, you know, he wasn't that much older than we were. So he, we could relate to him at this on this level that was a little bit different from our other teachers who were a little older than us. And he had the foresight to try to make sure that we were introduced to music, not just simply as an extracurricular hobby, but for those of us who he knew had a certain skill and talent to give us access to what a career could look like. So before jazz was even institutionalized, you know, he would go to the jazz clubs and get a relationship with the owners and say, hey, I'm going to bring these kids over. We'll sit in the back. I'm going to buy some fruit punch. Can you let us in? You know, they're all underage, but can you let them let us in to do that? And the club owners would say, sure, man, sit, bring them in. And we would go see all of these wonderful musicians in the same way that we could go to the music center at the time downtown and go and listen to the Philharmonics rehearsals or go see, you know, uh, an opera, Madame Butterfly or something like this. Saw it all as one continuous thread. And later... He was the one who was friends with Maurice White, you know, and, and said, well, man, come on over to the high school after hours and, you know, I'll let you in the multipurpose room. He had a so lot of friends. All, he had all these connects, you know, these connections. He, he was friends with Herbie Hancock and, he was and friends with Herbie Hancock. Lenny White and people like that, too. Right? And brought them to the school. And then they saw how, how serious many of us were 
and that this was beyond just come over and talk to some kids, they became people who kind of mentored us from afar. So Ernie, great saxophonist Ernie Watts worked in the studios for years and years, played on the Johnny Carson version of The Tonight Show for many years. He came and taught Gerald Albright and Gary Bias, who now plays with Earth, Wind & Fire. Wow. And Oscar Bashir came and worked with Raymond Brown and the other trumpet players. You know, Oscar, a very, very fine trumpet player, played again in the studios. Herbie Hancock came over to the school. His whole band came over. We became close to them on a different level and saw them then on a different level. Lenny White, a wonderful drummer who played with Chick Corea for years and years and, and, and many, many other people, is now one of my closest friends. Mm. And we met when I was 15 years old. That's an amazing education when you think about high school and, you know, the things that we are exposed to or not exposed to now in high school. The fact that you had a real, real musical education, not just, hey, here's some music, you know, let's hear what you got. You know, you were actually seeing what the future could look like for yourself as, you know, someone who could have a life in music. And we were tested a lot, Pete, because we would play music, a lot of which at the time was was over our heads. But the idea of being able to address it, and that music came from people like Quincy Jones and Gerald Wilson, who was a fine arranger and lived right around, lived in the same neighborhood as we did. Mm. So we would get his music and we would play. We would learn to write. I did. I wrote for the for the marching band. I wrote for the jazz workshop. We were allowed to experiment. And we were, I think, pushed forward into the idea that music making involved a lot of different areas and involved a lot of different possibilities. So it was an ideal situation for somebody who was really serious about about the music. You know, I think it helped all of us grow up, too, you know, just as people. Social graces, the way you talk to people and address people. To give you a real sense of community as well. That really is the the crux. I'm the chair of the popular music program at USC now, as you alluded to earlier. And that's the crux of that whole program, to replace competition with community. Mm -hmm. You lift each other up. Sure, you have that healthy competition where somebody would write a song, you go, man, I wish I had written that. (laughs) But the difference is, rather than keep that to yourself, you go to the person and says, that song, that's happening. Mm Mm-hmm. I wish I'd have done it, but you did, and bravo. And you move on, and it lifts you up. And that's also a big, big part of what we took for granted because it was just around us. But as musicians, young musicians, we took care of each other. We held each other accountable for the dreams we said we wanted. We wanted to be so happening that we could play for anybody. We could play for anyone. And many of us held ourselves to that and each other, and many of us did. Mm-hmm. And Google Chancellor, who you mentioned, played for Miles Davis yep. and Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. He's on Thriller. Yep. And, you know, the most famous is Billie Jean. But he also music directed Carlos Santana's band wow. and produced some stuff for Carlos Santana. That's who we wanted to be, mm-hmm. people who were capable of playing with anyone. And if you'll notice, I didn't say having our own band. I didn't say trying to be band leaders. Our focus was in being the kinds of artists and comprehensive musicians Mm -hmm. 
that could function in many different musical environments Mm -hmm. with our people that we saw as being masters or being able to support something that was on its way to a certain kind of mastery at that time. For sure. You mentioned Quincy Jones earlier, and I heard that Quincy Jones had given you some great advice, which was to not put all of your eggs in one basket of being the star performer, you know, to really spread it out and understand that there could be a future, you know, in terms of a longer career, if you play and you arrange and you compose and you produce and you musical direct and things like that. And obviously you took that to heart. I did. When I met Quincy and it was during many of those uh, contests and, you know, you see the same adjudicators and they'd see the same bands. And one, one of those times he asked specifically to speak to me. And he said, what do you, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, sir, I want to write. I want to write for film and TV. And he says, well, I have two things to tell you. First, you're going to have to be very, very, very good, which I thought was an interesting and kind of odd answer because, you know, of course, why wouldn't you want to be very, very, very good? And then he said the other thing, to, to your point. He said, and then you want to diversify. You want to find out everything about your world of music, what it is that you want to do. You want to know something about the other things that are involved. You don't have to perfect every single job, of course, but you want to understand how that works and how those things add to what would be your expression, whether it's your writing or your playing or your arranging or your singing or blah, 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 blah. You want to understand all of those other aspects that are around it. So that would include certain amount of the business, a certain amount of what different people in these record companies do, a certain amount of what goes on out there on the road, blah, 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 blah. You'd want to just have a sense of all of those things so that your expression takes that into consideration to be successful. All of that at 15 went right over my head. <laughs> But it stayed there. Mm-hmm. And as the years went by, it began to make more and more and more and more sense. Mm -hmm. And it was that information that actually jump-started what became my recording career at Elektra on another level. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about your first record deal. You talked about doing a lot of Battle of the Bands, you know, being judged by, you know, some of these incredible adjudicators, as you said, like Quincy Jones. Talk about the Battle of the Bands that you did still as a teenager in Monterey. Well, the Monterey Jazz Festival is a huge, iconic jazz festival in Monterey, California. They had an educational arm and they had a contest. And like I said, we entered, Lock High School entered a lot of them. They also had a combo division. Our band didn't win the contest, but the combo that I entered into it just as a, for something to do, did win. And the prize, so to speak, was that you would play at the festival on the big stage, you know, in front of this huge audience. And that's what we did. It was wildly successful. We were scared out of our minds, but we did our best. We had a sextet at the time from my high school buddies. And a lot of record companies, you know, came running, came running after me. Oh, 
we want to sign you, da, da, da. Now, this was the last thing on my mind. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm, not, I'm not ready for any of that. I'm, I'm getting ready to graduate from high school. I'm going on to college. Uh, thank you, but no thank you. But I did need money to go to school. <laughs> and so with the dust sort of cleared, and there was one label that kind of hung out and said, listen, we can't offer you a lot, but we got three-album deal. You can do jazz, continue to grow into yourself. We want to give you support. You know, it seemed like it wasn't so far out of my reach and wasn't going to be so demanding that I wouldn't have been able to use it as just that, a platform to get started. Uh, they were very nice, very calm. And what label was that? This was Prestige. And Prestige was a division of fantasy, right? A fantasy. Uh-huh. That was uh, housed in the Bay Area. I think the label was started by a guy named Saul Zentz. Yep. And big groups were there, you know, Creedence, Clearwater, of course. And all kinds of other people. So, you know, they had this jazz label called Prestige that was part of this family. And I said, uh, okay. And I did three albums for them. Reggie produced all of those. Reggie, your teacher Reggie from Andrews, high school. Reggie Andrews, my teacher, mm-hmm. uh-huh. It really was exactly what they said it would be for me. It allowed for me to have the expression of jazz, which they had seen at that festival. But they also were very open and allowed for me to experiment a little bit, which at that time meant utilizing some different instrumentation, Mm -hmm. singing a little bit, playing Mm -hmm. other instruments that I played. I played bass on a few cuts and wrote a couple of songs, sang one of those songs. During that time, it was like a, a time of growth, and it allowed me, I think, to see the possibilities for what kinds of unique experiences I had had that allowed me to find ways to sort of fuse a couple of different styles together in a way that was organic and authentic to me. For sure. And they being prestige, they gave you creative control. So it wasn't like they would come to you, you know, still as an 18-year-old young woman and say, no, you have to change this, you have to do this. They allowed you to make the record that you wanted to make. And prestige, you know, was, no pun intended, a prestigious label for jazz music. I mean, some of your your label mates at the time, you know, Joe Henderson or Stanley Turrentine or Cannibal Adderley, it was a jazz you know, purist label. So, you know, for a musician like yourself with the interest that you had, it seemed like it probably was a perfect home while you were going to college, right? It was it was excellent. And those people that you just mentioned and others then became part of the network of people mm-hmm. that I knew because the label would, you know, it was very common that the label would take a more established artist and ask them to play on something of one of the newer artists. Right, right. So Joe Henderson played on Prelusion, right? Exactly, exactly. And if those moments went well, you ended up playing, I ended up guesting on other people's albums. And, and these were the kinds of things that sort of, again, fostered this idea of community. Yep. And fostered this concept of excellence being the thing that led the way, which was, which was again, very reinforcing Uh, for somebody, especially my age at the time. Amazing. I mean, you talk about taking chances musically. These albums weren't straight jazz records. When you listen to Prelusion now and you hear a song that you wrote called Puttered Bopcorn, great title, (laughs) but that synth line, that melodic synth line on that song, 
you know, feels so ahead of its time, almost like, you know, what Stevie Wonder would be doing with Tonto, you know, and this progressive, like, Moog synthesizer stuff that was really new. brand new and that was the kind of stuff that I was attracted to as I heard you know that these different instruments different colors that could be added to our palette because remember I'm still listening and I'm playing but I'm listening and viewing things from a songwriter composer perspective so those things are really attractive those kinds of sonics and different ideas of what you can use as as again expressions that foster a certain kind of emotional content. Do you have fond memories of making those first few albums, the Prestige Records? Oh, yeah. It was always so much fun. I think even to this day, some of the most fun that I have is in the studio. There is this balancing act, this tightrope between precision and you know, the response in the moment, which could take you anywhere. So you've got both things existing at the same time. It is unforgiving in that what you play or what you sing or what you do, that's what it is. You know, we have the technology now to manipulate that. But back in the day, it was going to tape. And what you put down was what you got. Yep. Which made it all the more important to make sure you had the right players on those records. Without a doubt. So you ended up, the three albums that you made for Prestige, you did in subsequent years. You recorded 74, 75, 76. The second album in 75 was Before the Dawn, which to my ear feels way more fusion than it does jazz. And I don't even know if fusion was a word back then. But, you know, the players on that record, on the Before the Dawn record, you had Lee Rittenauer, you had Hubert Laws, Duga Chancellor again, and also Harvey Mason Sr., the father of our new Grammy chairman, Harvey Mason Jr. How did you feel about this fusion movement? Were you just doing your thing or were you kind of informed by other players doing a similar sound? A little of both, you know, because I don't think that I could escape the idea that by this time you were hearing among my heroes, George Duke and Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett, you were hearing a different take on the tradition that incorporated some other instruments, that incorporated some other grooves, some other sounds, some other rhythmic feelings. And of course, remember that I'm still a product of the dance music and stuff. I'm still Mm -hmm. listening to Sly Stone and James Mm -hmm. Brown, the Beatles and, you know, all of these people too. So all of this is kind of factoring in to this mix. And I was learning more about how to manipulate the sounds in the studio and then the ideas of what were were possible, I would just kind of go for it. I met Lee Rittenauer and Harvey because I was starting after that first couple of albums to do more studio work. And they became friends because Lee had had a standing gig at a small club in L.A. called The Baked Potato. And Dave Grusin, wonderful pianist and composer, played in the group, but he was composing for films and sometimes he couldn't make the gig. And Lee gave me a call. 
and for those for, for those who don't know, Lee as a guitarist, as a jazz guitarist, is uh, is one of the best. Yes, we were also label mates when he was on electric. Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to get okay. to that. Okay. No, no skipping ahead here. I won't, I won't skip him. Sorry. So um, <laughs> yeah, so we became friends and you know colleagues in this environment of just playing this mix where the music had jazz sensibilities, required improvisation and that kind of creativity, but was funky. Mm-hmm. You could bob your head to it. Mm-hmm. You could dance to it. You could you could actually, and some of it had, you know, different time signatures and all that. The idea was to make those time signatures feel like they went away. Mm-hmm. It had rock sensibilities. Mm-hmm. It, had, it brought in all of these different things, sometimes more successfully than others. But again, it kind of allowed us to play, and for me especially, to play with this different mix, this different language that incorporated all of the things that I liked about a lot of different stuff. So it informed a lot. For sure. The last album that you did for Prestige Shout It Out is really funky. You know, you listen to a song like Let There Be Funk, you listen to a song like Roll With The Punches, it's funk, it's straight up funk. By that time, too, I was doing some gigs, you know, just in town, just for money for, for school. You know, we would play house parties and dances and fashion shows. Was that Red like, Beans and Rice? That was Red Beans and Rice. <laughs> and that band featured uh, Charles Meeks on bass, who went on to play bass for Chuck Mangione for years. Uh-huh. Chuck Mangione being a one of the commercial trumpet players that kind of fused the style of instrumental music becoming more pop-centric. Yeah, of course. Josie James, who had sung on one of my previous cuts called "What's the Story," when I yep. that was on, that was on Prestige, she went on to go sing with George Duke and a myriad of other people, and is currently still with Burt Bacharach, who she's been with for years wow. and years. You know, this band and having to play for dances and parties made it such that now, when I'm revisiting these songs on the radio, I'm writing them down so that we have enough of them to be able to play. We had a book, right? And now, in writing them down, Pete, I'm, I'm actually studying Cool in the Gang, and I'm studying Sly, and I'm studying James Brown in a different way. I'm not just hearing it and dancing to it. I'm like, oh, wow, this is what those chords are. This is, wow. this is what those horn parts are. This is how that vocal goes. It went a lot deeper than that. Mm. And I learned a lot in that that, again, informed the way that I would be approaching songwriting and composition. Yeah, 100%. And you could hear that. The music that you're listening to informing, you know, some of what the cover band did in college, but then kind of going back to the studio and informing the recorded music. So you've now fulfilled your contract with Prestige. Talk about meeting Don Mizell at Electra. You know, you're still in your early 20s. You're still, you know, a baby. But talk about what Don mentioned in terms of this smaller jazz label inside of Electra that he was looking to do. Yeah. Well, Don had been a fan, and he said, listen, I'm going to have a chance to do something, and I want you to participate inside of 
inside of Electra Asylum, which I saw as this, you know, iconic boutique label that had all of the, you know, West Coast, especially pop stars, you know, your Jackson Browns, your Linda Ronstadt. Laurel Canyon. Yeah, all Laurel Canyon, yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, there's going to be a sort of a different arm of that company that focuses on music that, he said, it's kind of hard to describe, but I want to have the jazz aesthetic brought to a commercial consciousness. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> he said, and I think you can do that. You're already doing it. And I want to refine that and, you know, talk to you about being on this label. So sounded good to me. So by this time, I was much more comfortable with the idea of being on a label. Hmm. I definitely heard what he was saying, and I felt like he was really telling me to just continue to be myself, mm-hmm. which I loved because I had also just prior to that started receiving a little bit of heat from the jazz community. Right who felt a certain kind of, for lack of a better word, concerned about whether or not I was abandoning that. Right, right. But anyway, I, I thought that this was a forward move and one that would allow for me to be able to experiment more from a songwriting perspective, compositional perspective, and still be able to play and all of this. Right. So I signed with Elektra and I did... Seven like, albums, right? Seven albums. Yeah. Did Don Mizell encourage you singing more? Yes. He said, you know, I've heard some of the stuff that you've been doing. I heard that cut, Let Your Heart Be Free, and I want some more like that. Mm -hmm. I want you to also bring that a little more forward into what it is that you do. And I said, Which is obviously not what the jazz purists wanted (laughs) to hear, but you you had to follow your own muse, right? Yes, I think so. And I think that being allowed to have had so much freedom at Prestige gave me the courage to feel that if I could be supported and given the opportunity, that I could deliver something that would meet the target, that would meet the mark. A hundred percent. So you may not be attracting all the same people from the jazz days, but the tent is going to be bigger because the music is going to be more accessible and more broad-based. Yes, and without giving up a certain authenticity that did allow for there to, if I could find it, right, that did allow for me to be able to bring aspects of that jazz tradition to the commercial marketplace. Yeah, it's interesting going back to those albums now because, you know, you hear a lot of singing and you hear a lot of funk and you hear a lot of R&B, but there's playing, there's chops on these records where you guys are just going to town, you know? So you talk about threading the needle. You guys were definitely threading the needle between, you know, a lot of genres. And when you think about how long ago that was, that was, you know, almost, you know, 45 years ago. And yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, the first album that you made for Electra 78 was Patrice. Obviously a lot more vocals going on, but they're still jazz, they're still funk. But there are also these gorgeous ballads, like a song like When I Found You, which to me, as I'm listening to it now, I'm like, wow, that's like Quiet Storm. Was that even a thing back then? Was, was, you know, did anyone even know what that was or did you invent that?
record yet, you know. You were just making music. That, yeah. And happy to do it. Because watch this, Pete. I'm getting to sing. I'm getting to write. I'm doing all the arrangements. I get to play and improvise. I have a kind of a budget that can attract some of the best studio musicians and others who have done this in a situation where I also get to co-produce. Come on, man. How do you, right, how do you, how do you read that? <laughs> what's better than that? And when you say co-produce, you were still working with Reggie at that point, right? Working with Reggie at that point and also with another colleague, Charles Mims, mm. who we used to share the piano bench in high school. Wow. And we had a lot of the same uh, musical sensibilities and influences. And uh, wow. ultimately, Reggie Reggie stepped back, and Charles and I actually did the lion's share of the Electra album. Right, and Reggie went on to work with the Daz mm-hmm. Band and, and, exactly. and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. A familiar name, a familiar last name, shows up in the credits of the Patrice album. Talk about your sister. She started co-writing songs with you. Yes. Well, she actually is very gifted person with words and lyrics and she became a journalist later but the idea is that you know when I would have these songs and I would get stuck or wouldn't have an idea at all you know I could take these tapes home and play and I would say hey you want to fool around with this and see what you come up with and she came up with some really good stuff well four of those songs on the album were co-written by your sister Angela and Patrice the first album for Electra, had your first big radio record in America with Hang It Up, which is a song that you still hear all the time now. What can you tell us about Hang It Up? What I remember most about Hang It Up and that whole album was that this was probably the only album, I think, where we may have had a couple of rehearsals before going in the studio. And I think the reason why we did that is we were still trying to find our method. You know, we had been in a situation where we would, you know, write the music, go in, and we would all play, and that was fine for what we were doing with the jazz records. But because we had a sort of a a slightly different goal in mind for these, we needed time to experiment that wasn't on studio time. So we took members of the rhythm section into a small rehearsal room and, and actually rehearsed some of these grooves. And I remember hanging up being one of those that we did. I had this thing in mind that I couldn't really explain So we had to play it so that we could nip it and tuck it. And then I figured out how to be able to articulate that subsequently. But, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun because we all (laughs) kind of found it together and were like, oh, okay. And uh, then when we went in the studio, it was like then polishing the apple as opposed to having to, you know, invent it while we were there. Not good in inventing later, but that's what happened with that one. Right. Do you remember hearing Hang It Up on the radio for the first time? Yes, I do. You know, I was like... I'm on the radio, you know, and I had been on the radio before, but I hadn't been on that station before. (laughs) So, you know, the R&B stations picked up on it right away. It was nice to hear that the 
you know, the piano solo and all of the kinds of things that allowed for me to touch on the points we just talked about could remain commercial and authentic and offer this possibility for what could come later. For sure. We talked about the prolific nature of your recorded output in the 70s for the prestige records, but with Electra, you kept going as quickly as you did before. So Patrice was out in 78. Pizzazz, your second album for Electra, your fifth album overall, came out in 1979. And obviously, 1979 was the height of disco. So did that inform any of your production choices? You know, if you listen to a song like Let the Music Take Me, it's danceable, it's funky, it's jazzy, but it's happening all within this time frame that disco is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. What I took away from disco was that it was an opportunity to orchestrate grooves. And that's what intrigued me most. I wasn't particularly a disco fan per se or not, you know. But it made you I move. Dance. Yeah. I love to dance. And that's what it offered me, a chance to say, oh, wait a minute. How about these strings and these horns and stuff? What can we do? So um, that album, Pizzazz, also spawned uh, Haven't You Heard. And there's this long, long string intro. Right. And, because strings can be funky, and they hadn't been. So I said, that'd be something. Right. And those strings were arranged by... Yours truly. There you go. You know, what's great about Haven't You Heard, which, you know, turned out to be your first top 10 hit at R&B Radio in America, that's the gift that keeps giving because whether it's Jeanne Groove thing or whether it's, you know, Kirk Franklin looking for you or even, you know, part of our own family last year, Alan Fitzpatrick's remix, mm -hmm. you know, which is now over 10 million plays on Spotify on FFRR, you know, we talk about the long tail of great music. It just doesn't go away. And I heard an interview that you did that when you were talking about Jean A's Groove Thing sampling, haven't you heard? The most exciting thing for you is that they used your string arrangement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, a composer, a songwriter, you know, you're writing in the moment and it gives you a certain kind of joy. If you get that other people love it, boy, that is like, that's like rocket fuel. You want to just keep doing what you're doing with the idea that that joy can be spread. And when years later you're still hearing people pulling parts of it and using parts of it and being very creative with the way they use it to inform, you know, maybe another audience or another generation, man, it's, it's like a very high, high, high compliment. You know, so, uh, yeah, we also learned a lot with that record because with Haven't You Heard being played a lot in the clubs, we also saw the potential for what could happen as records crossed over into pop radio. 
that one didn't quite go because I think that, you know, we also learned at the time that the record companies have a role to play in it as well. And sometimes if they're behind the momentum, they can't catch up. They can't catch up. And radio mm-hmm. was very divided mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. You had your black stations and you had your pop stations. And mm-hmm. never the two shall meet unless there was a concerted effort to do so. So even though you might have a song that had that kind of potential or that proved itself on the dance floor with all kind of people being out there dancing, there also had to be a certain marketing perspective out the gate right. that allowed for there to be the potential for crossover. So you talked about earlier prestige was totally hands-off. Was Electra as hands-off with you in the creation of the music? I would say they were at first. And they were very hands-off until we realized that if they didn't have at least an awareness in terms of what was happening, that we couldn't automatically expect that there would be the kind of forward-thinking, planned marketing campaign with the idea of having a target to get the record sales from one point to another or to get it to the point where I would sell enough records to then be able to go out and tour or whatever the the goal was at the time. And this learning about that meant that we had to have a different presence and could not just be the creative end of it, that we also had to earlier on in our process be involved a little bit in what the game plan, the marketing, what the game plan was going to be. And in making a more concerted effort there, we realized actually after haven't you heard that if we got another shot at a song taking off in a way that had legs, that we could assume that those legs were long enough that we too could, you know, have a larger market and it was going to be a lot of work. And the work was on us to get people's attention mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. That became what was part of what happened with Forget Me Nots because where I had only been able to just Hey, turn the records in, designate that these things seem to be the singles after we did our internal research, and it would come out. This time we went to the record company a little earlier and said, okay, well, here's the record. Here's what we've got. Here's the cuts that seem to be be screaming singles to our constituency, and we'd like to have a plan that allows for us to be able to take it to the next level, and we'd like to know kind of work on that in front of it as opposed to trying to chase it after it's already there. And we met some resistance. That's being polite, Patrice. (laughs) So what I heard is that when you handed in the Straight From The Heart album in 82, which would become the breakthrough album with Forget Me Nots on it, that the label said, maybe you, Patrice, shouldn't be producing your own records. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's what we said. And we were, of course, we being, the, you know, the team of people by this time that I had around me with Charles and, you know, Freddie Washington and also Reggie still, you know, working uh, along with us. We were flabbergasted. But at least they told us, Pete, right. at least we didn't have to watch another record right. go up right. and then die a slow death because no one was there was nothing there. So they told us, but we acted on it this time. Right. So you decided to go out and spend your own money with independent radio people 
to promote forget-me-nots at radio, figuring that if it was what you thought it was, Electra would eventually have to pay attention. Correct. And? Well, see, this is the Quincy Jones moment ringing in my ears. You need to know a little bit about the other aspects. And this was why, so that we would know what to do. I don't know that I would say that it was to have to prove anything to Electra. It was so that our hard work did not just, again, have to hit the dirt because black artists always have to start all over. Yeah. You don't start all over at black radio, but in order to maintain that momentum that would allow for a wider audience to get to a, like a show like an American Bandstand or to be in a situation where your numbers allowed for the consideration right. of perhaps a video or something like that, you had to have the numbers that made it make sense and there was no way you were going to get it if you stayed in one place. Right. So we pooled our little meager resources to be able to buy a, a couple of weeks, three weeks, I think, of independent promotion, which allowed for it to get to radio and allowed for it to get to radio with at least a degree of enthusiasm, not just one of, you know, 20 more records and, oh, yeah, here's one type of thing. And you can't make people love it if they don't. Right. Right. But if you don't ever hear it, you never know. So the idea was to get it in front of them and get it played. You get past the program directors who were pretty discerning, and they would play it, and the people took care of the rest. It worked out well. I had to wait a while to garner the kind of attention that would allow for us to get tour support. Mm. But I didn't wait for that. I said, okay, in order to help to introduce this in the marketplace— I need to get on something that allows for me to be able to be seen and I can play this song and introduce the market to this song. And there was this jazz explosion tour with Roy Ayers, Stanley Turrentine, Bobby Broom, and myself. And Lenny White was on this too. And so each one of us would play, you know, a couple of songs and we would play together and play for each other. And I used part of my feature to play Forget-Me-Nots. And I would always introduce it like this. Going to introduce you to something new. Need to know how you feel about it after we play it, okay? Now audience is invested. We play the song. They're there. And then that really excited some more the momentum that was happening. So when they heard it on the radio, it was already a little familiar because they had heard it at these jazz festivals with Stanley and Lenny and Roy and all these who's who of jazz all-stars playing with you on your brand new unreleased song, Forget Me Not. Yes, exactly. It allowed me to get out on tour and get in front of the people before I was allowed to go out on tour on my right. own to get in front of right. the people. Well, the happy ending of the Electra story is that I heard they reimbursed you for your indie promo bills. Yes, they did. So there you go. Everything works out in the end. And let's talk about Forget-Me-Nots, because obviously that song also has taken on a life of its own. It was your first top five U.S. R&B hit, top 20 on the Hot 100, and obviously an afterlife of its own with Will Smith and Men in Black sample and George Michael Fast Love sample and so much. I mean, your your songs. If you go to whosample.com and you type in Patrice Russian, the site crashes because so many of your songs have been sampled. But talk about the creation of Forget-Me-Nots and talk about Freddie Washington, who you mentioned before, and the jam sessions that you had at your house when he was sleeping on, on your mom's couch. Yeah. 
Uh, Freddie originates from the California Bay Area, Oakland, and had been playing for a lot of years up there with different people and wanted to come down to Los Angeles because he wanted to get involved in the studio recording scene and, and everything. So we had been playing off and on, you know, because I knew who he was and, and I loved his playing. And he was a fan of mine as well. And we had been playing off and on. And he had come down for a couple of visits. And so I knew he was serious when he when he called me and said, ask your mother, can I sleep on her couch? Because I've got to get out of here. And so uh, my parents said, yeah, my mom and dad, you know, always taught us that when people are serious about something and you have the means by which you can help them take those important steps, if you can do it, then do it. And so they said, okay. And he's living at the house with us and we used to play every day. And on one of those days that we were playing, you know, just doing Freddie, you know, just playing, playing, playing. And I used to record everything just because I had a little four track and we would go back sometimes and listen to it, you know, make improvements in our playing or talk about, you know, certain things. And a lot of songs came from there. And one day he was playing this groove and I'm like, man, what is that? I don't know. I'm just playing. And gradually that evolved. Keep doing that. And that evolved into, you know, this sort of riff of this wicked bass line, which is so complete that you don't really need a lot of extra chordal material, mm-hmm. just the mm-hmm. right chords at the right time to enhance his bass line. And uh, we made a little cassette of it, and I think he played it for somebody else, and Terry McFadden came up with the forget-me-nots imagery. Mm. And then it was a- about writing the verse and kind of just letting it be, mm. you know? It's funny that so many of the Songs don't have a bigger story, but at the same time, I think it's a very poignant story because it points out how all of those years, Electra, Fantasy, Lock High School, Mm. taught you how to listen. Yep. And sometimes a moment goes by, and I think that there is an art to being able to realize, wait a minute, what's that from the moment that happened before the moment that happened after to be able to say there's something else there that too is a skill worth you know developing and trusting mm. that's how that happened So that album cycle, you got two Grammy nominations in 1982. We mentioned Forget Me Nots as best R&B vocal and the instrumental version of the number one track as best R&B instrumental. Do you remember, was that important to you? Was that exciting to you, getting these nominations and getting the recognition by your peers? And did you go to that Grammy award ceremony? Do you have any memories of that? Yeah, I. it was very exciting. It was another validation that a lot of those things don't happen by accident. That there's an investment that the artists and the people around the artists have to make in time and sometimes in money and sometimes in strategy and the belief that, you know, it's worth pursuing. I did go to the Grammys that year and it was a wonderful experience to be able to be there. I thought it was hilarious that Forget Me Nots was nominated for a best R&B vocal, because, you know, I never saw myself as a singer per se. I'm a musician who sings. 
it is one of the instruments that I use to express my music. So when I'm up against real singers, you know, uh-huh. I'm thinking this is hilarious, but super great, super cool. And I was excited about the idea that the time and the forethought did pay off. And it was a valuable lesson, you know, that none of us will ever forget. We were so tired after that whole thing. But it did say that, you know, at a certain level, each one of your albums, as they were at the time, they're a chapter in a book. Yep. A much longer book. Yep. And some chapters in leaving you hanging and where you want to dive into the next chapter for some kind of resolution and some chapters are sad not that we had sad times and some chapters you you know where it's going to go and some chapters you're completely lost you don't know what's going to happen so this was a chapter where what closed for us was the idea that okay we knew this but now we've lived this it doesn't happen by accident mm-hmm. there are things that have to be in place and while you can't guarantee the result. These things are for sure. A belief, the ability to take action, a plan, and then a good execution of that plan. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and there's no way that you could have known, you know, at that Grammy ceremony in 1982 that, you know, a few years later, you'd be up there as the musical director for the Grammy Awards for three years in a row. No way. No way I would have known that that would happen. That's why so many of those kinds of things, the Grammys is one that you've mentioned. It's just really interesting because there was a point where the recording and the whole idea of making records, especially as the business I could see, you know, changing, didn't seem as attractive to me. Right. To be able to have a skill set that allowed for me to continue to do music and the music that I like to do involved in a way that kept me vital and useful and pivot and lean into a little bit of that to wind up music directing those very shows. It was was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to what Quincy Jones had given you as advice to diversify. So, you know, I could talk to you for hours because I am absolutely fascinated by your work. And, you know, we haven't spoken extensively about the educational aspect of what you do now. There's a course named after you, the Berkeley College of Music. You're the ambassador for artistry and education through Berkeley. You're the chair of the popular music program at USC, as you mentioned. But there are all these other things that have been part of your career. You know, Robert Townsend recognizing your name on a list from his agent and hiring you, your first gig as a composer for film was Hollywood Shuffle in in 1987. And you ended up MDing for Janet Jackson. There's just so much that we could talk about. I want to close by a couple of things that I'd be remiss if we didn't get to. One is your relationship with Prince. And if you want to deep dive down a rabbit hole on YouTube, you can find a performance of you playing with Prince on Saturday Night Live for the 15th anniversary performance. But you and Prince were, you know, you were friends, you were peers, and he looked to you for some musical advice and just some feedback. What do you remember about Prince? I think that when we met, one of the things that was important to the person who made that connection. His name was Tommy Vacari. Tommy Vacari is a very well-known recording engineer and happened to be 
mixing one of my recordings and, I guess, introducing Prince to different labels, Warner Brothers, I believe. And he said, I would like you to meet this young man. He's from Minneapolis, and he's a fan of yours. But the bigger thing is he reminds me so much of you in terms of playing a lot of instruments, and you guys have some of the same influences, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So we talked on the phone. And after that very first conversation, I said, well, you know, call me sometime and let's talk some more. And he did. He followed up. You know, he called and he would ask me questions about how did you do this on a certain song or what effect is that that you put on so-and-so? So our initial friendship was built on this mutual geek out over music, you know. And he asked me to write the strings for his first album, a song called Baby, that's on his the first album. And we continued to have dialogue and met a couple of times when he might be in town. And then we were on American Bandstand. We filmed that show the same day. We were not on the same show, but we filmed the same day. So we were there at the same time. We were able to talk there. His questions were always about the music and I would hear from other people, oh, he really loves your work, et cetera, et cetera. And I was becoming increasingly becoming a fan of his. I would go to a lot of the concerts. I just watched it sort of just blow up, you know, just watched it just explode. Super, 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 super talented. And he asked me to come and do Saturday Night Live. And then I got to really watch, you know, him work in his space at Paisley Park and all the things that went along with that. He was always really nice and really gracious, and I think for me, very respectful. I had several occasions to witness his vulnerability, which I don't think a lot of people got to see. And mine took the form of just before Purple Rain was released. He was very concerned about it, obviously. And I happened to be in New York doing some promotion, and he was in New York for whatever reason. We happened to be in the same hotel. I didn't know he was going to be there, but I guess he found out I was there and said, let's talk. And I said, okay, cool. So we went down to the closed restaurant and we talked for a couple of hours and he was really concerned about Purple Rain. And I said, well, did you do the best you could? He said, yeah. I said, you put your heart and soul into it and does it represent what it is you were trying to make? And he said, yes, yes, it does. I said, well, then there it is. I said, that's all you can do. You got to wait now and just see if other people connect to it, and hopefully they will. And he said, from your lips to God's ears. Mm. And I said, it'll be fine. I'm sure of it. I just got this feeling about it that, you know, it would be fine. And, of course, it was better than fine. (laughs) And I went to the premiere and the whole nine yard, and I saw him at the premiere, and I was like, you know. So, (laughs) see, after that, especially after Purple Rain, our paths didn't cross very much. We did. The Saturday Night Live thing where he was debuting Electric Chair from the Batman soundtrack. He said, come to Minneapolis. And I went to Paisley Park for a couple of days and learned, you know, the song. He painted my name on the piano and had it shipped out to uh, New York for that particular performance. And we played that show. Of course, you know, Batman soundtrack and Batman as a movie was a, a sufficient hit for everybody to see that, okay, there's another one, you know, that he's done. But I felt a certain trust, you know. I was only there for a couple of days. He had the band rehearsing that song for 11 days. I said, well. <laughs> 11 days for one song. For one song. That's kind of perfectionist he was. So I said, but I can come for two. So I, I learned it <laughs> in, in the two days. And then the next time 
I saw that vulnerability and that trust put to a test was when I did my first Grammy Awards as music director. This was the show that he and Beyonce opened the show. And I went to the rehearsal, as was part of my job, to watch and make sure that they were staying within the time frame limitations and to see how it was going a couple days before the show. Of course, they were rehearsing and both of them very meticulous in terms of the specificity of how they were going to do this and that. And she's a hard worker and so is, so is he. And it was great to see him again. And the producer of the show walked in and Prince said to the producer, well, you finally got a real music director. Wow. And I was like, wow, okay, this is cool. So fast forward to a couple of days of the big show. And, you know, the Grammy Awards is a huge, 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 huge spectacle that is done, you know, live and in real time. And the producer just figured out on that day, he says, you know, I know that they're going to do this medley, he and Beyonce. And I know that we've been rehearsing it a certain way where they were playing live to some tracks just to reinforce the sound and reinforce the music and the perspectives of how it was going to come off. Not unusual at all, particularly for television and particularly in a situation where you have multiple acts and you're in an environment that is not a music environment. Staples Center is the basketball stadium. So a basketball arena. So, you know, having control over how your stuff is going to go out over the air is a big deal so that everything comes off all right for the millions of viewers around the globe that are going to see this thing. But the producer really, really wanted him to play what they call live, live. Don't use any of these, you know, don't do any playbacks, Pro Tools, da 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 I don't, you know, just, just go live because the live stuff was really great, but it was great because it was built on them being able to just focus on that. Anyway, so Patrice, go and tell Prince that we want him to do live, live. So I took a deep breath and I went up to the stage and I said, okay. I have to deliver this message, which I know is not a good idea, but I will go and do what I'm supposed to do. So I went to him and I said, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, sure. I said, look, the producer would like for you to do this entire thing live. And he said, why? And I said, I don't really know, but that's what he wants to do. And he stopped and he says, what do you think I should do? Mm. So I said, um, no one in the truck is prepared for this. Nobody in the building is prepared for this. They've seen it rehearsed. They've gone over it and over it. You've been over and over it. You've got it down, and it's killing. I said, but the show is in two hours, and you guys are going to do your thing, and you're going to run it down, and then they're going to reset And the next time you go, it's going out. I said, that's what I think. And he says, tell him no. Wow. So my point is, this is one of the biggest stars in the world who is known for putting on amazing shows and, you know. But he asked. And uh, our relationship started with a mutual admiration and a mutual love of the music. And so it ended in that Mm. state. Amazing. So the last thing, I'd be remiss if we didn't close up by touching on one final thing. 
which is obviously your music is so iconic, but so is your fashion sense and so is your style. And I remember as a kid going to the record store and seeing the album cover straight to the heart and it just really catching my attention. So was that something that was an intentional on your end with the beads and the braids or was that something that it was happening anyway and it was just captured on camera? Wow, Pete, thank you for noticing that. And I wish I wish that I could take credit for it, but actually it was because of the team of people that I had around me and us looking for ways to be able to to say separate myself from everyone else is inaccurate. I would say to be noticed in a way that would be acceptable to me. I always felt that the music spoke loud enough for me. But, of course, we know that that's ridiculous out there where you're in the music. <laughs> you know. So you need, you know, you need to take advantage of those things that work for you and give you, they would call it branding today, I guess. But mm. for us, it was just a way in which people would be able to see a certain point of view through every aspect that you had to be able to lead them into what it is you wanted them to receive. And one of the things that we talked about were ways to be able to capitalize on being a little bit different and doing things a little bit differently and the artistry being bigger than any one thing could contain. Mm. Because a big issue, in quotes, for me, from a marketing perspective, and you've alluded to, is that the music fit a lot of different things. Well, are you jazz or are you pop or are you soul or are you this or are you this? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> but that's a marketing director's nightmare back in the day when you had to fit in one bin or the other bin. Right. You could not be in both. So that was so counterintuitive for me. So the ways in which we did at least get into a situation that would allow for people to see things more singularly and hopefully entice them to want to be in the music was to find a way to make black art even more beautiful and exotic through being about that on these covers. The Straight From The Heart cover was taken by, at that time, a photographer who's very well known now, but at that time, that was like one of his first album covers. Wow. We kept saying, why don't you let us do this? Since we're going to be different, let us do this differently. And we ran into a certain kind of uh, him haul type of thing, and we would think, but we would be willing to take the chance. And once we did that album cover in that way, we took advantage of this beautiful artistic statement with the hair and the beads, and then that became a way to have a certain kind of signature that drew the people into the music. And for some people, that was the, the thing that they needed. And for other people, it was the, the music itself and that that was an additional asset. Yeah, it was a team of people because I was like, hey, I just want to play. <laughs> we got to figure out something to do <laughs> that well, uh, gives you a look of a right. vibe. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's amazing. All of that, the music and the artwork and the fashion and the, you know, just your incredible gift to music and incredible gift to Electra and the Warner Music Group and those of us who, 
you know, get to work for the Warner Music Group now, it's so nice to have the foundation of such incredible music that artists like you helped create. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview. And to thank you guys all out there who are within the sound of our voices, please keep on keeping on to keep the music alive and encourage excellence. Excellent. Thank you, Patrice. Thank you. Thanks a lot to Patrice Russian for spending time with us and sharing her insightful approaches to inspired creativity and making great music. You can catch up with her at her website, patricerussian.com, where there's plenty of extra content to explore. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.